Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. Thanks to everybody who's been listening and subscribing and downloading and sharing reactions with their friends and giving me feedback. I want to say a particular hello and thank you to my listeners in Japan. The Richard Roper Show uh, made the charts, the top charts in Japan for the first time. We've charted in the United States and Costa Rica, Poland, Romania, Croatia, Great Britain, but this is our first Hong Kong, but it's the first time to see uh, the the program uh, really making a dent in Japan. So we really, really appreciate that. Everybody who's listening got lots of stuff to get to as we normally do. Before we get to any of it, though, it's time for that reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. That's AmericanEagle.com, AmericanEagle.com. I want to start off, and I always tell you guys, we try to pull the curtain back and be transparent. I'm recording this in the middle of the week. It'll be available in a day or two. Uh, and as we speak on this particular day, uh, the producers and the uh, the writers are getting together uh, once again. Still a lot of progress to be made on the uh, WGA and SAG strikes, but I do believe we're going to get there. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about some of the fallout in recent weeks and some of the things that have happened in the news. Uh, and this is very interesting. Uh, you may have followed this. Drew Barrymore has a talk show, a daytime talk show. And, you know, I think she, her heart was in the right place. Drew announced a, a week or so ago she was going to bring the show back and actually did bring the show back without writers. And she said she, you know, she thought long and hard about it. There were other jobs, crew jobs that she wanted to have her staff back to work. And she's very respectful. Obviously, she's someone who's been in the uh, Actors Union since she was a baby, almost. But she wanted to get back to work. And it, it, it really, it backfired. It blew up. You know, you still have to cross a picket line. I think there were a lot of problems. Who are you going to have as your guests? Because the actors right now and the writers, but in particular, the actors are not promoting uh, their work, even if it's work they did before the strike, because that's part of the strike agreement. And then Jennifer Hudson at one point said that she was going to bring her show back in the same vein, saying, we're going to try this without writers. Uh, Bill Maher, uh, The Talk, which is the uh, CBS talk show. And in uh, every case, uh, they backtracked and changed their minds about crossing the picket line. Uh, recent story, Drew Barrymore now joined by Bill Maher in The Talk and delaying their returns to television after criticism of their decisions to uh, resume production while the strikes are still going on. Uh, Drew Barrymore, uh, you know, was really at the forefront of this uh, in terms of, uh, first of all, everybody knows, and I think most people love Drew Barrymore, and I think she's, uh, you know, she's been through a lot. If you don't know her story coming from the, you know, the royalty of the Barrymore family, and then, you know, she was in E.T., and by the time she was nine or 10 years old, um, she was already in rehab and had a very tough childhood and came out on the other side and I think has just done very well for herself professionally and more importantly, I think in her personal life. She was very sincere about this, but I don't think she was prepared for the fact that so many, not just fans and, and writers, but colleagues of hers that she has known for years and in some cases decades, very publicly said, you're making a huge mistake here. You're erasing decades of goodwill however you want to put it, this is crossing a picket line. This is doing damage to your colleagues. This comes across as very uh, selfish and, and narcissistic. And 
Uh, and Drew, you know, she posted a couple of videos and then eventually said, you know, I've listened to everyone. I'm making the decision to pause the show until the strike is over. She apologized. And, you know, there were still some people saying, well, I don't accept that apology. You only did that because of the backlash. You only did that to save your career. You only did that because you wanted to save face. So what? I say good for Drew. If you're calling out people for their behavior or their actions or whatever they're doing and you disagree with it, in some cases you think you're taking the moral high ground, maybe you are, the ethical high ground, that's debatable in a lot of cases. But if that person then apologizes and says, you know, I've seen the light and I'm actually going to do what you said I should do, if you're going to then say, I don't accept your apology, well, then why are you in the game? So you're, even if people apologize, even if people say they're going to change their ways, if you don't accept that, I think it says a lot more about you than the person who is making the change, seeing the light, if you will. So Drew Barrymore apologized and the show's on hiatus again and good for her. And I accept that. And I think, you know, in the long run, years and decades from now, when you look back at Drew Barrymore's legacy, this is a, a minor hiccup in a, in a very long uh, roller coaster, uh, well-publicized uh, career and good for her good for all of the talk show hosts who you know have listened to the public and have probably listened to people you know to good advice and said you know i, I think i i'm better off honoring the picket lines and and not crossing the picket lines and not because you, what you're doing there is you're doing damage to the to the cause because people then could still watch your show and go oh well you know this strike doesn't seem to be affecting everyone and same thing with uh, bill maher he has says he's going to delay the return of real time for now. Hope they can finally get this done. Uh, in both cases, you know, they're not writers. Bill Maher does some writing, but they have staff writers. So even, you know, you think, well, this are, these are talk shows. You know, people are just talking off the cuff. Well, no, there, there are monologues. There are scripted questions. There are uh, scripted bits. So any talk show you see uh, also has uh, scripted intros. You know, when I was doing uh, Ebert and Roper with the late, great Roger Ebert, uh, you know, the rule in that show, and it goes back to you know, the great Gene Siskel and Roger, when they started doing the show, Gene was the film critic for the Chicago Tribune. Roger was the film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times. When they would go to the, at the time, they started off on uh, public television here in Chicago on the local affiliate. Eventually it went to syndication, but they would never tell each other what they thought of the movie until they were on the air. And we taped basically in real time. You know, we'd stop once in a while for an adjustment, but if a half hour show was done in about a half hour. And the spontaneity of it was Gene saying, I didn't like this movie. This is why I didn't like it. Da -da 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 -da. He wouldn't say da -da 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 -da. I'd lay out his argument, two stars or thumbs down. And eventually became quickly. And Roger would say, I can't believe it. I thought you were going to love this. I'm giving it four stars. I think it's one of the best movies of the year. And then they would go at it. All of that was unscripted. And it was when I did the show for nine years with Roger and then with a series of uh, fill-in hosts. We did not know what the other person, we saw the movies often in the same screening room, would not discuss them until the day of the taping. However, on those shows, if you watch the clips on YouTube, before we'd get into each discussion, one of us would read an intro to the movie. Our next movie is Fatal Attraction, starring Michael Douglas as an attorney who gets involved in an affair with an editor played by Glenn Close. And then things go crazy. Let's take a look at a clip. And then we'd show a clip and then we'd set up the next clip. All of that was scripted. We wrote that part out just for the, for the sake of uh, brevity and clarity. And then we'd get into the, to the, uh, you know, the part of the show that was completely ad-libbed. So we were writers on the show. If we were doing the show right now, we wouldn't have been able to do it in that way. We would have honored it because we're in, in a number of different unions, including uh, SAG-AFTRA. But my point is that even when you think of shows as just off the cuff, 
they're not. And there are certain shows that are going back on the air. Obviously, there are game shows, uh, Dancing with the Stars, The Bachelor. You can do those. I still think there's some writing that's going on. It's pretty hard not to have it. You can ad lib it. But the bottom line is there are a lot of shows right now that are coming out on primetime television that would not be on primetime TV if we had scripted television. We hope this gets resolved. But um, to me, whether it's uh, Drew Barrymore or the host of The Talk or Mar or Jennifer Hudson, if they talked about bringing the show back and even started in some cases bringing the show back and then changed their minds, I, I accept that. Good for them. How about this? Speaking of uh, unscripted television, in most, for the most part, Wheel of Fortune, uh, as you probably know, uh, Pat Sajak has announced his retirement, but uh, Vanna White is going to continue, and she's been on the show for many, many, many years with Pat Sajak, and it was announced this week that she has officially uh, signed a new deal. Now, according to the reports, uh, Vanna White hadn't had a pay raise in 18 years. Uh, she was making about $3 million a year, while Pat Sajak was making $15 million a year. And I know that's an obscene amount of money, but trust me, Sony Pictures Television and everybody behind the scenes, Wheel of Fortune is a money maker, a huge money maker. A lot of game shows are because they actually are not very expensive to produce. I mean, you get some big time salaries for hosts, whether it's, you know, Drew Carey for The Price is Right or um, uh, Steve Harvey, you know, uh, with Jimmy Fox hosting game shows, you know, a lot of big names doing it now. There, yeah, there's money going out for the salary, but the set remains the same. You can tape five shows in a single day or maybe over a two day period. You can bank a week's worth of shows because you just, you keep the studio audience and you just, you know, usher in some new contestants and go through it. It's very simple graphics. Uh, even the sats with all the whistles and lights and bells. If you go to one of these shows and see it in person, you're like, oh, it's not exactly, you're not on the set of Avatar, shall we say. So Vanna White has got, got a raise. Good for her. I don't know how much more, but she was making $3 million, So, uh, And you could say, well, anybody can do that job. But Vanna's got the job. So, yeah, it's insane. It's ridiculous. Uh, but it's also kind of great and good for Vanna. And, you know, you couldn't do it as well as she could. I couldn't either. Good for her. Uh, more TV news. This kills me. I love this and hate this simultaneously. It cracks me up and also just makes me roll my eyes. So as I mentioned, obviously it's late September here in Chicago. Uh, it's late September pretty much everywhere. Maybe some different galaxies have different setups, but it's fall here. It's not fall everywhere in autumn. And Halloween is October 31st and all the stores in Chicago, and I'm sure in a lot of areas where you guys are at, have had Halloween decorations and, and uh, costumes and shit like that. Uh, on display since Labor Day. And it drives me nuts because a Halloween season to me is just absolutely insane. But people love it. They want to get into it. I think it's harmless. I, I don't care one way or another about Halloween. I've dressed up as an adult. Most of the times where I've dressed up for Halloween has been for TV, you know, for some TV show where they're like, all right, you're going to be this, you're going to be that. And okay, I'm happy to do it. But I, I don't care if adults want to do it. I don't really have any interest myself. But the Halloween season it used to be two days, and now it's like a month and a half. But the Christmas season, the holiday season, is already creeping upon us. And we will talk more about this as we get closer to the holidays because one of the things that just cracks me up is when the conservative far-right media, people with their own agendas, talk about a war on Christmas because that's it's the biggest in, in, in the United States of America, folks. The idea of a war on Christmas is the largest load of horseshit this side of the backstretch of the Kentucky Derby. 
There's no war on Christmas. Uh, there never really has been. There are certain cases where people want separation of church and state, and they get highly publicized. People say, oh my God, you know, this is a war on Christmas. But the United States of America is the Christmassy, most Christmassy country you'll ever see. And you can't go anywhere in the month of December without seeing Christmas trees and Christmas ornaments and hearing Christmas carols and seeing Christmas shows on TV. And the idea that the, that the elite, you know, devilish media is somehow anti-Christmas is insane because now in the last, I want to say 10 to 15 years, but really uh, in the last few years for sure, we have so many Christmas movies, not just in theaters, but Hallmark leading the way, but other channels lifetime as well. I'm talking about dozens of Christmas movies. Now there are some movies that are non-denominational or are about different faiths and that's awesome. And sometimes it's just called, you know, a holiday film, but in a lot of cases it's Christmas. They're about Christmas and that has also become a season. So, uh, entertainment weekly had this scoop. This cracks me up. The the very first autumn leaves may just have begun to fall, but it's already beginning to look a lot like Christmas over at Hallmark. Yes, it is. They are going to have, all right, I want you guys to guess, Hallmark Channel and the streaming Hallmark movies now, uh, all the Hallmark platforms, how many new, and I'm talking about new Christmas movies, do you think they're going to have for 2023? 42. 42 new Christmas movies. Now. Not only are they going to have 42 movies, they're going to start in October. October, folks. Christmas movies. And I know a lot of people, they, they kind of, they don't hate watch the Hallmark movies, but they, they, they maybe ironically watch or just kind of, they get a kick out of it. You know, they think it's, that we know the formula. Uh, somebody who's a young professional has forgotten the meaning of Christmas and has uh, lost touch with many people in their family. They have to come home for one reason or another. They come home because... Aunt Sue is dying or dad's business is under siege because he had a stroke or their boss sent them away because or they just got fired. They don't want to admit it. They got nowhere to go for the holiday and they go back to their hometown, which looks like a gingerbread village and everybody is the nicest and the, 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 the city's impeccable and nothing really bad ever happens there, but they hate it. And then they bump into their ex or they meet the, uh, the guy that runs the Christmas tree farm or whatever, and then they fall in love and then they decide never to go back to the big city. They're going to stay in the small town. Essentially, that's what happens in almost all these movies. But I did want to read you some of these descriptions, which are kind of awesome uh, for some of the early Hallmark Channel movies. So the first one is coming out October 20th. It's a month from now. And I, I actually kind of love this. And look up the poster online when you get a chance. It's called Checking It Twice. Checking It Twice. So, you know, He's making a look list. He's checking it twice. Going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus, right? But here's the double entendre here. The, the official description of the movie is a journeyman hockey player falls for a real estate agent in a career crisis when he's traded to her hometown and moves into the cottage in her hockey loving family's backyard. Okay. You got that journeyman hockey player falls for a real estate agent because he gets traded to her hometown and he moves into the cottage in the backyard of her family and they all love hockey. I'm sure she hates it. So checking it twice, get it? Because, you know, you check them into the boards in hockey. <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> Under the Christmas Sky coming our way October 22nd. Kat is an esteemed astrophysicist who is scheduled for her first trip into space next year, but then an accident grounds her. 
while on leave, coming to terms with the reality that her dream of being an astronaut is over, she volunteers at the local planetarium. There, she's paired up with David to work on an exhibit opening right before Christmas. Will the stars align to bring these two together at the holidays? Oh, here's one that's going to make everybody just cry. This one's called Ms. Christmas Comes to Town. Official description, a shopping channel host known as Ms. Christmas receives a terminal diagnosis, which inspires a multi-city excursion to spread Christmas cheer before her final broadcast. Well, there's one you want to gather the kids around the campfire, the fireplace. <laughs> Let's gather around the TV and, and have some eggnog and watch Ms. Christmas bite it. <laughs> oh, listen to this. This is a, a kind of an offshoot of Mystic Pizza. It's called Mystic Christmas is coming out. These are all for real, by the way, uh, and they're all coming uh, in October. So Mystic Christmas. Juniper travels to Mystic, Connecticut during the holidays to work at the rehab center in the aquarium. She connects with the owner of the local pizza shop, Mystic Pizza. Okay. Um, uh, I think that's enough. They're kind of amazing, but uh, also, okay, you get the idea. Um, uh, I had some other stuff I wanted to get to, but we got to take a break right now because I want to do some reviews for you guys. Why don't we hear about Portillo's and we'll come back and talk about some stuff that's either in theaters or streaming your way. All right, let's talk a little bit about Portillo's. They're known, of course, for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients, right down to that famous poppy seed bun. Then we have to talk about the legendary chocolate cake. And everybody knows if you've ever been to Portillo's, but if you don't, you never put the cake in the fridge. You have to have it at room temperature. That's how it's delivered to you or handed to you in the restaurant. That's the way you have to taste it. And of course, the menu has everything from the char-broiled burger to Italian beef, to some really good chopped salads. But, oh, that chocolate cake, I'm telling you. Now, there are locations throughout the Midwest and in Florida, California, and Arizona. But you can also ship Portillo's anywhere in the United States of America by ordering at portillos.com. That's P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. Okay, before we talk about uh, new stuff uh, that's available for you guys now or very soon, I wanted to mention that um, this is uh, unfortunate news in terms of uh, cancellations. Winning Time, which was the uh, the very cool and very popular uh, HBO series uh, about the Los Angeles Lakers of the 80s and then back into the 90s, Magic Johnson, Kareem, Byron Scott, Dr. Jerry Buss, the owner, Pat Riley, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, HBO is not bringing it back for a third season. It was just announced. Um, it's not because it wasn't doing well, because it was, but, and this is my speculation. Uh, this might be a little bit of an offshoot from the strike guys, because this was a very expensive show to do period piece program, uh, where you're talking about all the costumes, the production design, the sets, the automobiles, the music, all of that had to be is more expensive when you got to go back in time and also you know the basketball games the recreations of that the combination of practical effects and special effects so it looked like these guys were actually on the court 
playing the Celtics, uh, the various locales, the party scenes, expensive looking show. It looked great. But, you know, with all the streaming services and cable channels and broadcast networks taking big losses because of the strike, I think it made it easier, at least, for them to cancel uh, an expensive, really wildly entertaining show. So it's a shame. I don't think it's going to get picked up. Sometimes shows get picked up by a third entity, a second entity in this case, and comes back for a third season. I don't think that's going to happen. And I think in the case of Winning Time, when you have actors like John C. Riley and Adrian Brody, too, playing key characters, you know, there, there, there comes a point where they, they've already moved on and they're doing other things. That's happened a lot. You know, they, uh, I just saw somebody this week saying uh, there are rumors that they're going to reunite Game of Thrones uh, and redo the final season, which people, a lot of people who love that show hate the final season. It was compressed. I get that. I, I'm fine with it. It was still one of the greatest shows of all time. You're not, you're not, they're not coming back, folks. They're not redoing the final season of Game of Thrones. First of all, again, you, you're not reuniting that cast and the production and the money that would have to be spent. They spent usually, it would be 18 months between seasons of Game of Thrones because of all the location scouting and set building and all of that stuff they had to do. It would cost $100 million at least to redo it. And then the actor, you know, the actors and the writers would be like, listen, we did it already. We're not redoing this. So I'm sorry, folks, but that's not coming back. All right, stuff that uh, is out there and available, the supermodels is a four-part series on Apple TV+. And I thought this was really entertaining. And at first, I didn't know for sure or feel that it was going to be worthy of four episodes. That's a lot for a documentary series because it's about modeling and models. But they do such a good job here. It's about the... Uh, it's interesting because it's about parallel to the era of the Lakers. <laughs> and it's also about some very tall figures, but very different. Um, it's about the supermodels from the 80s and the 90s, Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford, Linda Evangelista and Christy Turlington. And if you weren't around then, listen, there are a lot of models, you know, especially influencers and Jenners and Kardashians and people like that who are insanely famous. But I don't know if you can top the amount of fame that these, they were kind of traditional models too. These were models who were on the cover of Vogue and doing runway stuff and eventually doing TV things. But as the documentary uh, so very well chronicles, they were treated like the Beatles, these four women. When they were 20, 21, 22 years old, they were in music videos. They were on MTV, covers of magazines, throngs of fans. Paparazzi would follow their every moves. It's really interesting to see. Cindy, Linda, Christy, and Naomi are still redefining what it means to be a model. There was a feeling about them that they wanted more. I was not seen as a person who had a voice in her own destiny. What I loved about the girls, they were a group, and that was so fabulous. We were always together, and we made great photos together. You know, I just felt like to be together as a group, it just was so fun. They were my sisters. We get this phone call that George Michael wants to shoot us in his video. We made a decision. I will do it. I'm going to do it. Yes, okay, I'll do it. It wasn't about the hair and the makeup. It wasn't about the fashion. It was about the women. That's what a supermodel is. They each had to overcome various things, especially in the case of uh, Linda Evangelista, who a few years ago, actually after being a recluse, came out and talked about um, the cosmetic procedures she had that ended up with her being disfigured. She's had a double mastectomy dealing with uh, breast cancer and a lot of other issues. But in their 50s, they're all in their 50s now. They're all such impressive 
smart, self-aware women and them looking back at that time, but also talking about their lives now. It's pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. Supermodels on Apple TV+. Plus. I also want to mention a movie that um, has been in theaters now, I guess, for a couple of weeks, and that's Dumb Money. Dumb Money. Yo, what up, everybody? I'm going to pick a stock and talk about why I think it's interesting, and that stock is... GameStop. Retail traders have hooked into GameStop. I think they think it's a good investment. It looks like there's one guy driving all the buying. Who is this schmuck? Dumb money, man. Wall Street is betting that this company is going to fail. But if it fails, these hedge fund assholes make a shit ton of money. 70,000 people have watched this video. Lord Titty, I love you! If he's in, I'm in. If he's in, I'm in. GameStop, those shares not stopping. Holy fucking shit. Holy shit. You should probably dial in. Holy fucking shit. We're like really fucking rich. Uh, This is the uh, true story. Now, uh, of course, turned into a fictional movie about, you remember this? This was all the way back like three years ago. The GameStop phenomenon that's when uh there was a guy who on youtube called himself roaring kitty and on the forums was uh deep fucking value i believe he was d deep fucking value his real name was uh keith patrick gill he was the guy that he wore like the headband and he had the the t-shirts with cats on him and he was in his basement and he knew he really knew the business he was a trader uh financial guy but you know kind of a mid-level guy but he loved GameStop. he kept saying i like the stock and his loyal band of followers kept buying this. GameStop is the, the the video retailer, right? And people are like, what the hell? It went from $17.25 a share to more than 500 a share in a month. In the meantime, all these gazillionaires were short selling it. So it was kind of this great revolution uh, in the financial world. It didn't last forever, but they do a great job in the film. It's very much like in the, in the uh, tradition of the big short. It's kind of a thrift store version of the big short. They tell the story from the point of view of uh, Keith Patrick Gill, a.k.a. Roaring Kitty, and um, also the certain billionaires uh, played by uh, Seth Rogen and Nick Offerman, all based on real-life characters. And then they add another level where we see some uh, regular folks uh, who bought in on it and all of a sudden you know, were worth a few hundred thousand dollars and then had to decide if they were going to sell the stock, stay with the stock. It's done by some of the same people who gave you uh, I, Tanya and Pam and Tommy and the Mike Tyson series. So there's a certain way of finding these true life stories and making them mostly comedies, but also kind of touching in some aspects. Dumb Money, really good cast. Uh, Paul Dano plays uh, Roaring Kitty. Pete Davidson's in the film. Uh, Shailene Woodley, America Ferrara. Uh, very entertaining film. Check it out if you get a chance. And I also want to mention shuffling the papers if you're a john wick fan and there are tens of millions of you around this great planet of ours uh there's a prequel series coming to peacock called the continental from the world of john wick now as you'll recall uh i think from the very first film right uh, we were introduced to the continental that was the hotel in the financial district in manhattan uh where assassins killers you know etc whatever you want to call them you could take refuge. It was only available to a certain clientele and the rules were no killing, no business done, 
on the premises. And that's where um, Ian McShane was the proprietor of uh, the Continental. And you had to have that certain gold coin to get entrance. So this is the backstory of young Winston who ran the hotel. And this is, this is about the hotel because the Continental clearly uh, was in existence uh, before uh, the time period of the John Wick movie. So this is set in the 70s. So John Wick would be a baby Wick. He wouldn't have been born or be two years old. He's not in this movie, folks. But a number of characters are younger versions of them. And it just tells the story of what happened at the Continental in the 70s, how Winston came to take control of uh, the Continental. Really well done. This sacred institution wields power beyond your imagination. Winston, your brother stole something from me. What he took is very important to a lot of very dangerous people. Find him, because if you don't, I'll bring the weight of this whole institution down on you both. Sharon, show our guests the door. We made a big mistake coming here. You're my brother, Frankie. We have to strike first. And I need all the help I can get. How are we supposed to believe a guy in an ascot can pull this off? It's a cravat. And away we go. It has the same style and look as the John Wick films. So there's, there's a lot of money spent on these. It's three, it's three parts. Each of the three parts is almost feature length. It's three nights in the, in the life of the continental. You get a lot of great seventies period music. Like I feel loved by Donna summer and roundabout by yes. And Baker street by Jerry Rafferty, James Brown music, uh, really cool needle drops, heart magic man's in there. Uh, Mel Gibson is the guy. Mel Gibson plays the guy who runs the continental in the 1970s. So, and he's, you know, I'm not talking about Mel Gibson. We'll talk about him another day. But the character he's playing is the worst human being on the planet, pretty much. So now young Winston going to try to try to overtake him. And what the, the circumstances are, are a little complex and almost convoluted at, at times. But we get to the point where we're like, aha. So that's how it all happened. A lot of stylized violence like you get in the John Wick movies. I mean, this is heavy stuff. You got to be up for that. Uh, creative killing, if you will. I mean, you get the shootings and the stabbings and the punching, but as you do in the John Wick movies, sometimes whatever happens to be handy it might be an iron, you know, whatever might be handy in the kitchen will be used as a murder weapon. Really well done, though. And it definitely leaves the door open for more stories set in the Continental, either between the 70s and present day, or you could even go back because I think the Continental opened. It's not a real hotel, by the way. If you go to New York, the exterior is different from the interior. But in the world of John Wick, the Continental opened, like I think, in the early part of the 20th century. So you'd have opportunity for all kinds of prequels and offshoots. And you could even go to some of the Continental hotels across this great planet of ours. But right now, the Continental from the world of John Wick on Peacock. Check it out. Good stuff. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this edition of the Richard Roper Show. Thanks to everybody, as always, for listening. And we will talk again soon.